0: this morning we are continuing in our kingdom culture series. I know there's a a good handful of you here uh, for the child dedication, some special guests. We're so glad you're here. Whether you drove a few minutes, a few hours, or whether you flew in, man, we're so glad you're here with us this morning. We're going to be spending some time diving into even more of the honestly controversial and divisive topics that we see here in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So what Paul does is he, he writes this letter to help the, the Corinthian church to differentiate between worldly culture and kingdom culture. And if you were here with us last week, then you know what a tangled web this really was for these Corinthians, Because right? they were seeking to leave behind a lot of the, the cultural patterns in order to pursue the things of Jesus. The problem was there was a lot of things that they had trouble differentiating, so last week we spoke on the topic of, of sex. This week we're going to speak on the topic of marriage, of singleness, and divorce. And the reality is we're going to try to point you back to, to God's design. So Paul does all throughout 1 Corinthians as he points the Corinthian church back to, hey, this is how God has designed you to live. This is what kingdom culture looks like. And so before we get going, I actually just want to give Pastor Josiah a quick shout out last week covering such a challenging topic in such a helpful and relevant way as he helped us to address some of the the myths that we've been led to believe around sex. And what I want to do this morning is actually to encourage you to see this morning's message as really a part two of sorts. There's a couple of reasons why. First is that this is a letter that we're reading, right? We weren't... uh, Paul didn't write this with, with, with chapter and verse breaks in here. Those little headings uh, that you might see in your Bibles, those weren't there. This was one continuous letter. And so what that means is that the, the truths that we read about last week, they flow right into the truths that we're going to read about and discuss this week. But the other reason I want you to see this as a, a part two of sorts is because Paul is going to continue to address some of the myths that culture has been feeding the church. Only now he's going to shift from the topic of sex to the topic of relationships. And the reality is, when it comes to our romantic relationships, there is no shortage of myths that need to be busted. Can I get an amen? (laughs) And y'all, I should know. I should know because even though I've been married to my incredible wife, Lindsay, for almost 12 years now, I spent years and years as a heartbroken and hopeless romantic. Now, I know it may not seem like it to you. I got this rough, tough, you know, macho guy exterior, but the reality, why are y'all laughing at that? Now, I know how we really feel. Okay, that's fine. But you're you're not wrong. You're you're not wrong. See, for, for so many years, right, I would watch, like, unashamedly watch all these romantic comedies. Everybody's watched one of these. Even you, Gideon. I know you have. And y'all, I would even try to emulate some of these over-the-top romantic gestures that we see in these movies. I mean it when I tell you, I put the hopeless into hopeless romantic. Y'all, I had it bad. See, I fully believe that the way towards happiness was to find something like this. And what that led me to do is it led me to, to date a bunch of girls I never should have dated, to spend a bunch of money I never really had, all to find myself just repeatedly disappointed, devastated at times, heartbroken, and hopeless. And listen, I'm not proud of those things, but the reality is I know I'm not alone in them either. I was doing some some research this week, and and even secular people will say, hey, that culture, media, uh, music, movies, all these things, culture has led to us having unrealistic expectations of relationships. And as a result then, more often than not, people come to find lower than average satisfaction in them. My guess is that some, or maybe even all of you, can relate to that this morning. This is what happens when we allow the culture around us to influence us. We go chasing after myths, and then we're surprised when all of a sudden our lives, our, our romantic relationships look nothing like they do in the movies. When we didn't marry our high school sweetheart. Right? When we're still searching for the one. Or when our husband turns out to be absolutely nothing like Ryan Gosling. <laughs> There's, there, can, there can only be one, guys. There can only be one. <laughs> Listen, family, it's time that we wake up, right, to, the re- to realize the, the, the culture of the city around us. It hasn't just influenced our view of sex. It's also influenced and impacted the way that we view our relationships. And these myths that we've been led to believe, they are destructive. These myths we've been led to believe around our relationships, they are destructive because they coax us, whether we're married or whether we're single, to chase after contentment outside of God's desire and outside of God's design. They coax us to chase after this contentment outside of God's desire and God's design. So today's message is not just going to be about marriage. It's not just going to be about sex. It's about honoring and glorifying God right where he has placed you. Which means this morning, there is a a word in this message for each of you. Whether you're married, single, divorced, or anywhere in between those things. I believe God has a word to share with each of you this morning. And I believe he's going to use his word to reveal more of this kingdom culture that we have been called to live in. Y'all ready for that? All right, good. Would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for this wonderful day. Lord, for this wonderful celebration of what you're doing in your church And Lord, we ask that you would just use this time. Lord, would you speak to us through your word? Would you convict us? Would you compel us to both live in and carry out kingdom culture? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so for those of you that brought your Bibles or Bible apps, you can go ahead and and get those out now and get ready. As you do that, let me just uh, briefly explain to you the, the context that we are finding the Corinthian church in. If you've been here the last couple weeks, you heard me compare it to California. Pastor Josiah compared it to Austin. It's this whole idea. This is a young, thriving, vibrant, but also uh, maybe a little bit confused society. People are chasing after things, and we certainly see that in the sexual promiscuity, the experimentation that was happening. And the reality is for the Corinthian church, not only were these, these people surrounded by this culture, but most of them were just recently removed from it. So what you had is you had a a bunch of people that were trying to follow Jesus, who had been washed clean, who had given their lives to him, who were still trying to make sense of how all of this works together. These are basically all all first-generation Christians. Many of us, we were given the blessing of growing up watching parents or watching those around us and seeing how this kingdom culture life is supposed to be lived out. Well, the Corinthians, they didn't really have that opportunity. How were they supposed to live as a spouse in light of their newfound identity in Christ? How is their identity supposed to influence their relationships or even their pursuit of them? These are difficult questions for us to answer, right? Even for us here today. How much more so for these people living in the midst of this context without that same foundation? And so what this does, families, it leads the Corinthian church to write a letter to Paul. So we read this letter of 1 Corinthians. This is actually his response to their letter because they wrote to him saying, Hey, Paul, Like, thanks for playing the church. Thanks for raising us up. We got some questions still. We got some things that are left unanswered. It's all the the what ifs, right? They might know the simple truths, but what if this is my situation? What if this? So Paul is writing to address some of that confusion. And so he's going to clarify a few things beginning with the role of sex within marriage. Now, if you were here last week, Paul was pretty clear about the role of sex outside of marriage. That was basically just not not to go there. But what about how believers were supposed to pursue holiness within marriage? We're going to get a glimpse of just how confused they were even in these first couple of verses of chapter 7. Look at them with me now. 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 and 2 say this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul responds saying, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. What was happening is that some of these believers in Corinth, they had started to develop a really negative view of sex. They knew the immorality it could lead to, so what they did is they just swung the pendulum back the other direction and said, hey, we're just going to stay away from that altogether. Even married couples, they just gave it up. And what Paul is saying here is that, hey, that is unnecessary. It's it's probably going to be harmful to your relationship, because that desire for holiness is actually leading them to operate outside of God's design, right? He reminds them again that sex was designed specifically for marriage. And because of that, Paul actually encourages sex to be practiced regularly within marriage. We just pause for a second and say, welcome to those of you guys who just tuned into the conversation. <laughs> it's all ladies laughing. Notice that. <laughs> Notice that I said the word regularly, Okay. I said regularly intentionally, I didn't say weekly, I didn't say daily, I said regularly because it's not a matter of frequency, it's a matter of consistency. It's not a matter of frequency, it's a matter of consistency. So when I say it should happen with regularity, I mean that outside of unusual circumstances, it should not become a rarity. Are you all with me? See, sex within marriage is good. That is what God designed it for. But on the flip side, getting married just to have sex, not so good. I know Paul doesn't necessarily address this here, but what what the church has done in a lot of cases is gone ahead and inserted that truth. We don't see that in Scripture. We don't see uh, the Apostle Paul offering up sex as this escape clause to those who are struggling with sexual temptation, to those who are struggling with sexual sin. See, some some people, even some churches, they'll, they'll use this verse, they'll interpret it as giving permission to folks to use marriage as a means to an end. That's not what's happening here. Paul's not telling the sexually frustrated singles to get married. What he's saying is that those who are married should live as though they are married. Does that make sense? Good. So I want to shift now to those marriage myths that we were talking about just a second ago. There were marriage myths that were surrounding the Corinthian culture, and they're not a lot different from the marriage myths that are surrounding us today. So we're going to start. For those of you note takers, you can jot this one down. Marriage myth number one is that my body belongs to me. My body belongs to me. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. It says this, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I mean, there is no way for me to overemphasize just how countercultural these verses, these words would have been to the Corinthian church. The idea that there could have been any sort of mutuality in marriage, either in bed or outside of it, would have been laughable to the Corinthians. See, because in the Corinthian cultural, sexual satisfaction was the man's right. In fact, just about everything was the man's right. Right? His, His wife, his family, those in his household, they were all there to serve him. And here comes Paul saying, hey, not so fast. He says this covenant of marriage was designed to be a reciprocal one where each partner serves the other and gives to the other what is rightfully theirs. Let me say that again, because I think that's counter-cultural, even in today's day and age. Right? That marriage is designed to be a reciprocal relationship where each partner serves the other and gives to the other what is rightfully theirs. See, this is where I think worldly culture and kingdom culture collide. Because what Paul's saying is that the authority that you think you have over your body, it actually belongs to your spouse, And so what our posture should be then is to be focused more on what we can give than what we can get. So here's what it does. It takes this mindset that Pastor Josiah talked about last week of of my body being used for my purpose, my plan, and for my pleasure. And it changes our, our focus to seeing our bodies as being used for God's purpose by God's plan for our partner's pleasure an important truth I need you to understand Paul's getting at here that sex within marriage is not just meant to be exclusive or consistent but it's meant to be selfless not just consistent or exclusive but selfless and here I get that this is going to maybe ruffle some of your feathers because some of us have been led to believe that sex is all about us what well, we can get out of it But man, so many couples would find a healthier marriage if they simply understood that their bodies do not belong to them. Y'all with me? Good. Because I think it's equally important to talk about what this passage doesn't mean. This passage does not give you the right to demand sex from your spouse. Period. Just because you have the, the stronger desire doesn't mean that you get your way. That's not at all what this is saying. It's focusing on what you can give more than what you can get. In the same way, giving authority over your body to your spouse does not relinquish your right to say no. It does not relinquish your right to say no. The, the painful truth is that verses like these have been used even within the church to justify sexual abuse within marriage. I know that this is not comfortable to talk about, but I also know it's happening, so I'm not going to steer away from it. Just because we're commanded to to give authority over our bodies, over to our spouse, does not give them the authority to abuse it. Plain and simple. And finally, this does not give you the right to hold your spouse responsible for how you respond to sexual temptation. If you watch pornography, if you commit adultery, if you are struggling with lust, that is not your partner's fault. That's your fault. Own up to that responsibility. Take that opportunity to stop being so selfish and instead to be selfless because that is what a kingdom-focused marriage requires. We on the same page here, family? Good. Let's move to marriage myth number two. Marriage myth number one was my body belongs to me. Marriage myth number two is that sex is only about pleasure and procreation. Sex is only about pleasure and procreation. Look with me at verse 5, and then I'll explain what I mean by that. Paul says, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self control. So, Paul's saying here is that it is okay to take sex off the table, but only if it's for a period of time. Only if you both agree to it, and only if it's for the purpose of drawing closer to Jesus. Only if it's for the purpose of, of remembering who your first love is. And the picture that's being painted here is that of a, of a marriage triangle. Any of you who have ever been to like any marriage conference ever is going to show uh, a diagram like this. Right? Where as you grow closer to God, you also grow closer together doesn't mean you ignore the importance of a physical relationship but that you're in sync with each other and your desire to grow closer to god spiritually that it actually brings you together and that becomes the priority and what happens y'all when we take this posture is that we start to see sex as more than just about pleasure or procreation but we also see sex as being about communication this shows us the kind of impact that a more more intentionality and more intimacy can have in marriage See, I believe that when Paul says not to deprive one another, he's not just talking about depriving one another physically. It's not just the sexual aspect. He's also talking about the intimacy that is needed to keep the fire of a marriage burning. Because let's be honest, when he talks about the temptation to look elsewhere, more often than not, it's not because of a lack of of consistency or, or frequency in the physical relationship. It's because of the emotional or relational void. That's what's causing spouses to look elsewhere fulfillment so the question is how do we keep the fire burning well it's pretty simple how do you keep any fire burning you tend to it i want you to think of this like a campfire okay i'm not sure how many of you have been around a campfire recently but if you go around any campfire you will see three types of people okay the first type of person you're going to see at a campfire is that person that shows up with their their nice little chair they're not going to help build the fire they're not going to help keep it going they're just going to plop right down they're going to wait until that fire goes out and they're going to get up and leave Okay. That's person number one. Person number two is the lighter fluid guy, right? Some of us are the lighter fluid guy. Not so good in relationships, right? Because the lighter fluid guy is the one that he's not going to help build the fire either. He's just going to go for those couple of moments to get this big reaction, this big response. And see, unfortunately, most of us as spouses, we can fall into one category or the other. Either we passively just pass the time and then just get up and, and leave once the fire goes out. Or we think that just a couple big moments, a couple big gifts, celebrating a couple big days throughout the year, that that's going to be able to keep the fire going. But the reality is the only way to keep the campfire going is to constantly tend to it. Yeah. Right? To keep a close watch on it, to be constantly stoking the flames. And the same is true for your marriage. It needs affection. Needs attention. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your love language is. It doesn't matter. You got to tend to the fire. Don't deprive one another physically. And don't neglect the importance of intentionality and intimacy within your marriage. Y'all, marriage is hard work. Amen? <laughs> Maybe that's why Paul says, it's, hey, it's going to be better if you just stay single. We're going to shift now to the singles in the room. I told you there would be something for everybody here this morning. Let's shift to our next marriage myth That is that singleness is a curse. Marriage myth number three, singleness is a curse. Now, before we get to this next portion of scripture, I do want to call out the fact that this myth is not one that's only perpetuated by our culture. In fact, I believe the bigger culprit in this has actually been the church. All the singles said amen, right? What I hope and pray that you have not been led to believe here at Awaken, but reality is you may have is the focus that the church has on marriage, it can send this message, either directly or indirectly, that singles are some sort of unfinished business. As if the rest of us are like these fine and finished masterpieces, right? <laughs> Give me a break. So if you're here this morning and you're single, please know you are not unfinished business. You are not some second-rate citizen. And you are not even single because God still has work to do. You are single because that is how God has gifted you. See, what can happen when you believe that singleness is a curse is you do what I did. You throw away everything else. You go in pursuit of that one person. You forget about your relationship with God. You forget about those things that are supposed to be important to you. And you go in pursuit of those things. Right? You spend all of your time and energy on, on finding the right person rather than becoming the right person. Or, worse yet, you focus so much energy on becoming the right person, thinking that once you become the right person, well, then God's going to bless me with that special someone. That's not God's design for marriage. Marriage is not some sort of like incentive in God's spiritual program. It's just not. In fact, Paul is going to tell us that singleness is actually preferred. Check this out, verses 6 through 9. It says, Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish that all were myself, whereas I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. See, I love what Paul emphasizes here. He says, hey, wherever you're at in life, hey, that is God's gift to you. All right, so if you're married, you have been given the gift of marriage. And if you are single, then you've been given the gift of singleness. It's not a curse. It is a gift. So he says, hey, use it. Now, I want to do give a, a brief caveat here because I know there are some of you here this morning who have lost a spouse. Some of you here who have, have been divorced. That's not a gift. Your loss, your pain, that is not a gift. That's not what Paul's saying here. That's not what I'm saying. What he's saying is that the singleness itself is a gift. And just as God gives us spiritual things to do the things that he has called us to do, he blesses us with the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness to do the things that he's called us to do. He's given us a purpose in our marriage. He's given us a purpose in your singleness. In fact, Paul's gonna speak to that in verses 32 through 35. He says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Paul is saying, listen, our priority is to serve and to pursue the Lord. And the reality is those of you who are single, you have more freedom to be able to do so. There is less that is competing for your affection and for your attention. I know life is still busy. I know you still got to do all these things. I'm not trying to make light of that. But the reality is you do have more time. You do have more space to show that attention and that affection. This is a good thing, y'all. Paul says this should be desired. I was listening to a message from Pastor John Piper and he had just this one quote that I thought was so encouraging. I just wanted to share it with our singles here. He says this, God promises spectacular blessings to those of you who remain single in Christ. And he gives you an extraordinary calling for your life. To be single in Christ is therefore not a falling short of God's best, but a path of Christ-exalting, covenant-keeping obedience that many are called to walk. So, if you're here this morning and you're single, don't let your singleness be a distraction from you becoming a more deeply devoted disciple of Jesus. I know the last time you read Matthew 28, but when Jesus gives the Great Commission, I'm pretty sure he didn't say, Go get married and then make disciples of all nations. He didn't. He said, Go and make disciples. Marriage is not a prerequisite for having an impact for Jesus, it's not a prerequisite. If anything, it makes it more challenging. So take advantage of this gift that God has given you and pursue the mission that He has sent you on. Singles, you've been given a gift, so use it. Not to gratify yourself, but to glorify God. I'm gonna make the spiritual practical here just real quick, because I don't want this just to be like a rah-rah pep talk. Easy for you to say, Pastor Ryan, right? Let me give you three things that your gift enables you to do more freely. Number one, enables you to more freely develop your dependency on christ it's the opportunity you have you may not have as many people to rely on That is a gift because it allows you to focus more on jesus number two is to deepen your understanding of god's word to take advantage of whatever extra time you have to spend time in his word learning his truth number three to devote time to serving your church this one's not as self-serving as you think it is god's given you gifts and given you the opportunity and the freedom to use it listen None of these things require us to be single, but the fact is those of you who are single have more freedom with which to press in to these things. Okay, we've covered our married in the room, we covered our singles in the room. Now we're going to talk about one more area we've yet to discuss. Right? What happens when our desire for fulfillment or even our desire for holiness leads to us uh, leaving aside marriage altogether? This is going to be the topic of divorce this morning, which was just as prevalent for the Corinthians as it is for us now. Look with me at verses 10 through 17. Paul says, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. You will save your husband. How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Okay, there is a lot going on here, a lot for us to unpack. But at the foundational level, the myth that Paul is writing to address and to debunk here is that marriage is temporary. That's our fourth and final myth this morning. Marriage is temporary. See, what was happening in those days was not a whole lot different than what's happening right now, right? Divorce is prevalent. Sure, it was only the, the men who could seek after the divorce, really, but, but they were taking liberal use of this freedom that they were given. And the reality is, some of their, their reasoning for divorce, some of their intention was actually actually good. Some of them were doing this because they thought it was a way to lead them to be more, more holy. But what Paul makes perfectly clear here is that divorce is not a part of God's design, and those who, who were married, we're not to chase after contentment outside of their marriage, but we're to stay true to this lifelong commitment. Let me again say one more quick caveat here. When it comes to things like abuse, when it comes to certain mistreatment, when it comes to infidelity, scripture speaks to that. Okay, we don't have time to go into those things right now. But outside of those things that scripture allows, Paul's saying divorce is not a part of God's design. And now I know that this is a, a biblical truth it's rooted in in spiritual truth, but there's also some practical implications here. So I wanted to share something I came across that I thought was really interesting this week. I don't know if you knew this, but relationships experts, they all pretty much unanimously agree that it takes several years for married couples to find their rhythm in their marriage. They actually said it takes anywhere between 9 to 14 years for the average couple to find a rhythm. 9 to 14 years, isn't that crazy? Meanwhile, the average couples in the U.S. that are getting divorced, they're splitting up within the first four years of marriage. What that means is, more often than not, right after they get hitched, after their lives don't line up with the movies we talked about, they just break things off before they even get to the good part. That's what happens when you believe that marriage is only for your own personal happiness. How you take what God intended to be a lifelong covenant, and you see it instead as a short-term commitment. Paul is here to remind us that is not God's design for marriage that if it's happiness and holiness you're after the best way you're going to find that is by staying true to God's design so he tells those who are married to stay married Right? God has used he's placed them in that marriage right even though they may not have been believers when they went into it he's placed them into it for a purpose he's going to use it to accomplish his purpose in fact, what happens when, when you're married and you, you don't allow divorce to even be part of the discussion is it actually increases your dependency on God. It increases your dependency. I mean, it actually even increases your dependency on your community. So that's the command he gives to the believers who are married. But what about those believers who are, are married to an unbelieving spouse? Would it be better for them to, to separate from their spouse because they're, they're unequally yoked? Well, Jesus never spoke to this, which, by the way, is why Paul puts in parentheses there, uh, I, not the Lord. It's not that he's, he's just giving his personal opinion. This is still uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This still carries divine authority. What he's saying is that, hey, Jesus never said this specifically, but this truth still holds true. Like Paul's answer in this circumstance, when there is one believing spouse and one unbelieving spouse is the same. It's to stay married because marriage is not temporary. In fact, Paul goes on in verse 14 to speak to the fact that it is both a benefit and a blessing when the believing spouse stays true to their commitment. It benefits and it blesses not just the unbelieving spouse, but also the children. Let's look back at that verse real quick. This is important. It says, The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now this doesn't mean that the unbelieving spouse or the children, like that they, that they just simply inherit the faith of the believing spouse. Right? Our faith can't be borrowed. It can't be inherited in that same way. But the faith of the believer, it benefits all those who are around them and who is in closer proximity than their spouse or their children. This is the same idea that Jesus speaks to in Matthew chapter 5 when he talks about a believer being a light and giving light to all those that are around them giving light to everyone in the house. Everyone is blessed and benefits when gospel truths illuminate their lives. So Paul's encouragement for both the, the equally and the unequally yoked is the same. He says, stay married. But he goes on to address one more circumstance, how a believer should respond when their unbelieving spouse decides to leave. He says, let it be so. Let it be so. Well, what does that mean, Paul? Paul. <laughs> There's a lot of debate actually about what exactly Paul is communicating here. I'm happy to have that conversation with you another time, but what I want to just focus on this morning is one thing that Paul does make clear. He says that in that circumstance, the purpose of the believer is to pursue peace. He says, God has called you to peace. What he's saying is, hey, believer, if you find yourself in this situation, you are to reflect the heart of God in response to your spouse. Even if they have done things to hurt you, even if they have wandered from you, even if their desire is to leave, the command remains the same. God has called you to peace, so pursue it. Now, as I was reflecting on this this challenging verse, God brought to mind the Old Testament prophet Hosea. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this story, but Hosea was married to a woman by the name of Gomer. Yes, there's a woman in the Bible named Gomer. And what happened is, you know, Gomer, uh, she was not faithful to the marriage covenant. She left Hosea and and went and and, and was, she cheated on him. Not just one time, but but repeatedly. She actually gave her life over to, to prostitution. And do you want to know the instruction that God gave to his prophet Hosea? He said, go to her, pursue her, comfort her, clothe her. And when she comes back, he said, receive her and reconcile with her. Now, why in the world would God tell Hosea to do that? It's because that's what he was doing with his children in Israel. Uh-huh. That's what he does with us. Yes. Just like Gomer, y'all, we have wandered off. We have been adulterous. We have chased after contentment in our relationships and made our lives all about us. But Jesus came after us. Jesus pursued us. Jesus clothed us with his peace. What he did in doing so is Jesus showed us that this joy-filled life, this content life that we've been chasing after, is not found in serving ourselves. It's actually found in serving others. This is the path towards fulfillment. That fulfillment and contentment that we so desire is not found in chasing after the satisfaction and the gratification that the world has to offer. It's found by us remaining faithful to God, by being who he has called us to be. That leads me to my final point this morning. We spent a lot of time debunking some myths, but as I invite the band back up this morning, I want to close with a simple encouragement. No matter where you find yourself, no matter what your situation is, no matter what your relationship status says, if I had to sum all of this up in one sentence, how you can apply this to your life, it would simply be this. Glorify God by being the you that he has called you to be. Glorify God by being the you he has called you to be. Look back with me at verse 17. It says, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Family, living this kingdom culture life, It happens when we embrace the the place and the space where God has placed us. It's as simple as that. It's looking for ways to seek and to pursue the Lord right where we're at. Because culture around us, it's going to lead us to chase. To chase after contentment, to chase after relationships, to chase after gratification. But the word of God tells us we are to remain. So let me encourage you, if you are married, stay there. Stay there. Don't be daydreaming about being someplace else with someone else. Changing your spouse is not going to lead to the contentment that you desire, but changing your heart, am might just. If you are married, stay there. Commit to your spouse today. Take divorce out of the discussion. Prioritize communication and intimacy, intentionality, Be a little less selfish and a little more selfless. And the encouragement to you singles here this morning is the same. Stay there. Stay there. Don't waste time wishing for that special someone. Surrender your life to God's purpose. And he will richly, richly bless you. Whether this is a, a permanent station or whether this is only a season in your life. Listen, family, wherever you are, don't go chasing after contentment outside of God's design. Glorify him by being the you he has called you to be and be all there. Be fully engaged because the message of the gospel tells us that true contentment, true fulfillment can only be found in one relationship and that's your relationship with Jesus. That's where it has to start. doesn't matter what your relationship status is. How's your relationship with Jesus this morning? I want to invite you to stand to your feet now as we get ready to respond and and worship. I want to encourage you to respond in one of of a few ways this morning. You might be here this morning and and you might be struggling with some of these things and you just simply need somebody to pray over you. You might just need a, a comforting hand put on your shoulder and a word spoken over your life. If that's you, I want to encourage you as the band starts to play here in a minute, you can head to the back of the auditorium Pastor, some of our prayer team will be back there to pray with you some of you married couples though may have come to a realization this morning you haven't been keeping that fire going you haven't been holding up your end of the bargain you've been pursuing your own gratification rather than focusing on your spouse and if that's you i want to encourage you just take this time during this response confess your heart to your spouse confess your desire to want to to be better and then worship god together the third and final way i think for some of you you just need to come back to your first love this morning maybe this morning isn't even about your relationship with people your relationship with a spouse or a girlfriend or a boyfriend or your lack thereof it's about your relationship with jesus would you take this time as we respond to reconnect with your savior